Well, good morning. So here we go. After being in Peter for several weeks, who is very directive, helping us navigate what challenges might be lying ahead, now we're in the Psalms. And the Psalms are meant to be a crying out from our hearts to the Lord. And then the Lord revealing himself back. This is about being transparent, about being uh, very sincere and being tender-hearted. And so I believe, again, we, we chose these series prior to any of the realities that we're now dealing with, and I believe that they are divinely orchestrated. I am definitely ready to be in the psalm, to have the Lord just speak to our hearts and, uh, and, and basically come to that place where we empty ourselves of ourselves and we come before God just in true reality of who he is. And today we'll be in Psalm 8. And so you can uh, feel free uh, to go there if you want to prepare for the reading of that. So like any of you, there's always moments where a particular scripture might actually come to your mind in the forefront and it just basically hits you like a ton of bricks. I can tell you that this particular psalm, Psalm 8, impacted me for the first time, I would say, in a small way, when in around fourth grade, I was in a small Christian school for about four years, and in that school, you received recess privileges, you received freedom to go to the bathroom whenever you wanted, if you re, uh, were able to quote um, scripture that you've memorized. And so uh, they would give you different scriptures every week that if you memorized them and quoted it to a teacher word for word, you would get those privileges for recess. And so Psalm 8 impacted me so greatly that I got my recess privileges and my bathroom privileges. There you go. So that is the beginning of this psalm for me. I remember this being the second chapter I ever memorized, uh, the first one being Psalm 1. And, but it wasn't until I was a youth pastor and uh, I was at age 34 leading a mission team filled with students uh, to Zimbabwe in, South, in Africa. And in 2004, uh, Zimbabwe wasn't in the greatest place. It, it's still struggling today, but uh, it wasn't as bad as it is today then. But we had two teams from our church that had gone there and just the preparations for going on that mission trip where there would be two separate teams, two separate schedules, uh, we ran into challenges for the months leading into this trip. And it became frustrating, to be honest. Then we get to Zimbabwe, and we're, we're going to be on the ground for two weeks, and I have about a dozen teenagers with me uh, there, and, uh, and we're doing ministry in some pretty uh, harsh situations, and uh, an orphanage, and we also went to a uh, HIV ward where there were children dying of, of AIDS. Uh, it was an impactful time, but when it came to the spirit of the team, it was very frustrating. It felt like from the outset, outset, when we began to meet as a group in the months leading up to it, there was just something not right. So we get to Zimbabwe, we experience all these things, we see things with our eyes that just break your heart. We get to the end of the trip and we're having 
two last nights, and we're in the Matopos of Zimbabwe, north and west of Bulawayo, but almost to Victoria Falls. And we're coming up to this mountaintop where we're going to be staying. And now this mountaintop is not very high, but it's a stony surface. It's a very strong stony surface. And, and as we're riding to it, you're seeing the sun, but, you know, in the, in the horizon, about to set. It would be in the place that if you and I were to see it in our horizon, it would, be, it would tell you we have about an hour until the sun goes down. Well, our missionary that we were working with says, as soon as we pulled up, he goes, hurry, we've got to run to the top. Now, running to the top of the mountain was probably about four or 500 yards. Probably a five-minute journey, you know, right? Getting up there. And he's saying, we've got to hurry before the sun goes down. And I'm looking at it, it's like, it's got an hour left, you know, at least. And so as we're watching it, you know, rising above the horizon, and we're rushing to the top to see it, uh, it was amazing. We're literally seeing the sun go down like this, watching it with our naked eye, like watching it go down. And I'm looking at the missionary like, how is this possible? And the missionary says, well, keep in mind, we're very close to the equator. And it's very different from those of when you live far away from it. It hangs in the lower part of the sky where when you live further north. But when you're right next to the equator, it hangs in the sky in the middle for a long time. But when it gets out in front of you, it really drops quickly. And so in just a matter of minutes, the sun disappeared. Well, we were so enamored by the beauty of being on this mountaintop that as soon as the sun went down, it became dark. And so we had a dark sky, and now when you're in the middle of Africa, where there is very little light, the stars were just majestic. And so we just stayed out there. 45 minutes to an hour go by, we start to see a little sliver of light coming up in the horizon. Uh, and it was just like almost instantaneous, we're seeing that little sliver of light. And, and then all of a sudden, you start seeing the top of the moon. And as fast as the sun went down, now the moon is rising. How many of you saw the moon last night? It's gorgeous. We're, we're watching the fireworks from the hill overlooking the airport here in Lidditz. And, and, uh, and I kept looking at the moon and then looking at the, at the fireworks and then looking at the moon. And, I, and the moon was just incredible. But the, this night in 2004, I'm watching that moon rise up so fast. You could see with your eyes the craters on the moon, and you could see shapings on the moon. It was so big and so brilliant. In that moment, after just being pretty much very frustrated and upset by the two weeks we had just had, because I felt like we were impacted by what we were seeing, but I felt like our hearts were still cold. I was complaining to God before I saw that moon rise. But when that moon rose above the threshold, and it's just so brilliant, and then already captivated by the stars around me. I have to be honest, I became broken and humbled. I had a towel that I had brought up there with me, and I was sitting on it, and I pulled the towel out and covered over my head because I felt ashamed. I was so taken back by this moment I didn't want anybody to see what was going on 
but I couldn't take my eyes off the stars and the moon that were right there. I went from complaining to God to being, God, who am I? When I see you, I see what you've created here. Who am I? Who am I? My guess is that many of you here in this room can point to a moment where you were out in creation, somewhere in nature, and you had that moment where you realized God is God and you are not. God is God and he is way beyond you and you are merely you. Can you remember such a moment where that happened Where maybe the stars and the moon just impacted you so greatly that you're capturing just how incredibly powerful and vast God actually is. And then how tiny and insignificant you are. That was what happened to me on this hill in Zimbabwe in 2004. And like me, David, King David, had a similar moment He was somewhere in a place where he could just be kind of lost with God and out in creation. It was clearly nighttime because of his references in Psalm 8. But he's impacted deeply. I mean, after all, he's king. He's already won, been won many battles. He's mighty. But in this moment, he realizes God is God. And he is not. And God is significant. And he is merely a man. It's in moments like this where the humbling of our hearts before God leads us to worship. We start realizing God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our acknowledgement. So let's pray now and ask for God to use King David's moment before him to impact us and lead us to praise. So Father God, I say thank you for these moments where your creation cries out and speaks to your glory and impacts our hearts. May this text do so this morning and create wonder within us that you would do all that you've done for us in light of how great and significant you are. Lay our hearts bare before you and reveal yourself anew to each one of us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin reading Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I ask, what is mankind that you are mindful 
of them, human beings that you would care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and yes, even the fish in the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, our Lord, Lord, my Lord, God, my God, King, my King. You see, it's one thing to say there's a God. It's another thing to say then, I know who that God is. But it's a big difference between saying who God is and saying he's my God. Consider what things David could have said. And you understand that when he says, as king of Israel, one of the prominent figures on the face of the earth, and he says, Lord, our Lord. God, our God. King, our King. He is not just acknowledging who God is, but he's saying that that God is his God. That God is our God. Therefore, acknowledging who he is and aligning yourself with him. We can ascribe to somebody their title, but it's another thing to say, it's my God. I mean, think about it. People, depending on how you feel about the president of the time, choose your generation. When you say, that is president, dot, dot, dot. But then when somebody says, but that is my president, dot, dot, dot. It says something, doesn't it? So when somebody says, yeah, God, that's who he is. But then you hear him say, but my God. You know that it's more than just acknowledgement. It's personal. And you're aligning with him. That possessive plural pronoun, our God, says that King David acknowledges he is the Lord. And he is our Lord. We are to align ourselves with him. not just acknowledge him. Then he goes on to say, and how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'm sure David heard every day the phrase, your majesty, your highness. But David never ascribed to him how majestic is my name in all the earth. It was merely the title that afforded him the term majestic. But in God's case, his name is majestic. 
In fact, when you understand the meaning of this Hebrew term from which we get the English term majestic, it means mighty. And it's mighty in terms of the royal sense. It's a royal attribute. So as one commentarian said, to say that he's majestic in name is to say that he is mighty in his victories. He is mighty in his judgment. He is mighty in his law. And he is mighty in the way he rules over all of creation. He is mighty and he is king. So already as David is addressing God in this moment, he's saying, God, you are God and you're my God and your name, Yahweh. Your name, Yahweh, is mighty in power, is mighty beyond any other name, and it is truly to be exalted royally above over any other name. And this is King David saying this about God. So he is Lord, my Lord. He is majestic in name like no other. And then he says at the end of verse 1, your glory, when David's, again, looking up in the, in the stars and seeing the moon, he says, and your glory has been set in the heavens. Now, one of the neat things about being alive in this time is that studying scripture is very different than it was even 15 years ago. I have a Bible program that allows me to split my screen and I can have commentaries and Bible dictionaries on the right while simultaneously having the scriptures on my left, and I can highlight any word, just put the cursor over any word in the scriptures, and it'll tell me either the Hebrew word or the Greek word and its meaning. It makes time go so much quicker in the study of scriptures. But something stood out when I highlighted the word glory in this, because it says, you have set your glory in the heavens. It's the word howd or hod. Hode is only used in all of the Hebrew scriptures 24 times. Now think how many times you've read the term glory in scripture. It's numerous, a lot. Typically speaking, the word glory that is written in the Hebrew scriptures is kavod. Kavod being glory in the same way that hod means glory, but in this case, Hode glory versus kavod glory is this. It's a glory that is insurpassable. You see, glory can be ascribed to many things on this earth, including glory to God, kavod. But in this case, after David says, God, my God, majestic is your name, and no other name is like it, he now says, and your glory is set above in the heavens, and this is a glory like no other. It's insurpassable. And so I'm looking at this, and I was not aware of this other term for glory, hod, and so I began to research it and found that in today's modern prayers by Hebrews or Jews of today, they follow a pattern using the shape of the tree of life, and they, they follow a pattern of prayer using several different Hebrew words. And hod is at the bottom as one of the legs, holding up the tree. And hod, in the way they pray it, is acknowledging that the glory of Yahweh, or God, is 
insurpassable, it's an obstruction, or it's a, as they say, an obstacle that cannot be moved. It's greater. It's like looking at a boulder that is huge, that you could put a hundred people behind and try to move it, and you will never even budget. Meanwhile, you could pick up a, a, a pretty good-sized stone and manhandle it and say, look, dear, I got it. But then you try to not drop it on your toes. That might be a glorious rock, but it's not the kind of glory this is speaking of. This is saying it's an obstacle that you cannot go through, you cannot go over, you cannot go around, and you cannot move it or control it. Hode, glory. Now, glory in its basic definition is this. Heavy in weight or of weighty importance. Or as the Bible dictionary that I was using says, a majestic present. So, David says... God, my God, and your name is beyond any name here on this earth, and your glory, I can't even touch it. I've got to stand away from it. I can't move it. I can't manipulate it. It is beyond me, and it makes me inconsequential. You see, David is now backing up because of the glory of God. He's beholding it, and he's realizing Oh my goodness, I am merely a man. I am merely a man. I am not worthy of this glory. It is an elevated glory beyond anything that I can comprehend. Then he goes on to say, after acknowledging that God is God and, and that his name is majestic and his glory is unlike any other glory, you cannot move it. It is beyond us. Then he says in verse 2, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies and you can silence the avenger. <laughs> Think about this. The terminology he just used. Now, David was known as a conquering king. He was known as a mighty warrior. And now he says in this humble moment when he realizes God is superior, that the praise of a child is more powerful than any stronghold that the enemy can conjure up. The praise of an infant is stronger than anything the avenger would try to accomplish. Just by acknowledging that God is God and I am not, and that he is worthy of praise and his name is to be exalted, and his glory is beyond anything else, that mere praise silences the avenger, creates a, a separation from those who would want to war against our souls. That's how incredible God is. So when we worship God and we praise God, it can transform the moment. When there's anger and hate, you play a song that speaks the praise of God, it changes the atmosphere. There have been stories of how music changed the spirit of protesters. Look it up. Where praise songs were being played by worship bands. And all of a sudden, the message changed. Still good, still in the right terms, but it was 
then a different spirit. And all of a sudden, all men created equal in the eyes of God, worship. And the praise of infants and children demolished the strongholds of an enemy. How powerful, how powerful is the praise of our God. David was undone in this moment. He is clearly now backing up into a posture where when others approach him, they approach so going down to their knees and, and not lifting their heads and not looking up. You get the sense that David is so undone by the majestic presence of God in this moment and his glory is shining so significant wherever he's at in this moment that he asks this question, who am I as a man or mankind that you would ever be mindful of us. Mindful of us. I mean, when you consider the universe and how incredibly significant it is and then how tiny and small we are, just flying a drone 100 to 200 feet in the air above us, we look tiny and everything around us is significant. In light of the universe, think how tiny and small we are. We're but a speck of dirt on our planet. But in light of the universe, we're an unseeable molecule. Yet God is mindful of us. I mean, look at what he says. He says in verse 3, When I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? And human beings that you would even care for them. So the magnificent creator of the universe thinks about you. All the things that he would have on his mind, he thinks about you. But that same magnificent creator not only thinks about you. Now you can probably say, well of course he can think about me. Because he can think about all things. He, he, there's nothing that can escape his knowledge. But then... How do you explain the next statement where he says, and that same magnificent creator cares for you. He's not just creator God making sure that everything doesn't collapse on each other. He's saying, what is mankind? That he would actually care for him. He cares. Now, how is it possible that David could be so confident in this moment that the creator of the universe, who's done all these things, this glory that is inapproachable and, and unmovable, how in the world can he discern that he thinks about me and he cares for me? Consider Romans 1.20 for a moment. When Paul says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Basically stating that in creation, nature, that when you consider what you're seeing with your eyes, God says you have just been made inexcusably theistic, you cannot say atheism as an excuse when you come before God and say why you didn't believe or trust in him. 
saying, no, I put enough knowledge of who I am and what I do and what you see around you that all men are without excuse. That means you could have lived your entire life as an atheist. When you die and you come before God and you realize he's real, you're, you have no excuse. He says, I put the knowledge of myself out there in creation to where it reveals my character and my nature and my qualities so you cannot give me any kind of an excuse. I read in a book by Dr. Collins, Francis Collins, that, that basically was part of the Genome Project and the uh, discoverer of the DNA chain, one of the greatest scientific breakthroughs of the 20th century. He made this statement that metaphysicists have a higher degree of theistic belief than any other science in the world because when they consider mathematically the understanding of this universe that is before us, understanding that all it takes is one star changing course, that the cataclysmic event that would happen in regards to that, in response to that, would destroy the universe. And then when you realize this universe has been in place for the thousands of years now, they, they might claim millions, but when they say thousands of years, for a long time, and not a single star has gone off course and created ultimate destruction, they know there is a great orchestrator. They know there is a great author. That is why metaphysicists do not struggle with the idea of a being because mathematically this is impossible that something could stay perfect and continue to be so. So all of us, when we get out in nature and we see creation, it creates an account that it reveals there is a God and that that God is intensely holy and that that God is intensely powerful. And as a result, it reveals that that God cares about how you live and his interaction with you. We call that in the theological circles general revelation. It reveals God. It reveals his character. It's general. And all men receive this. All mankind receives this. But it takes special revelation. The understanding of who that God is and the understanding of who we are as sinners and understanding that God wishes to have a relationship with us and so he created a path by which we can have that relationship. That is special revelation. And that is what is needed in order for salvation or redemption to be experienced. And I'll explain more here in a little bit on that. But this general revelation makes us all without excuse. So David is having this encounter. God is God, and he's my God. He is majestic. His name is beyond anything, and his glory is immovable. It's beyond any glory I've seen with my eyes here on this earth. Then he says, why would God ever consider me? You see, as part of David considering creation and actually considering what it means as he's beholding the moon, beholding the stars, considering all the order uh, that is there and the magnitude of it, as he's considering God, then he realizes who he is. And then it also reveals to him how incredibly 
magnificent it is that God would ever consider him. So this must be understood from the text. The creator God does indeed consider mankind and think about mankind and cares for mankind. But it's important to understand and hear this. Man's life depends on the fact that we must consider him. We must consider God and his qualities. We must consider who he is in his nature. And we must consider that he desires relationship with us. And we must consider that that relationship can't happen as long as we remain in the sin unpaid for. So while we consider God through creation, it reveals to us that God considers us. And David ends his psalm with this statement. (laughs) Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He repeats himself. Here it is, he's out in the desert or perhaps on his palace, and he's having this moment with God, and he's covering his head like I felt like I needed to do in Zimbabwe. And you realize God is so holy, and you are not. You realize God is magnificent, and you are not. Then he says in verse (laughs) 5, we even have glory. But that glory is nothing like what he has. I mean, we get that glory because we're made in his image, as it says in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, where he says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Which is why David can say, In verse 5, you've made mankind lower than the angels, and yet you've crowned mankind with glory and honor. Kavod. It's not the immovable glory. It's not the hoed. It's a different glory. But then we use that glory that's given to us from the creator God to serve creation, to take care of it. So, of course... Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. God, my God, Yahweh, the great I am, beyond me, immovable a great glory that's beyond terms powerful enough to put stars in their place and to create order powerful enough to create a human being that is capable of understanding much and and creating dominion over plants and animals and creatures of the sea but yet a shadow of the great template, you. Oh, who we are not, but oh, how great you are. And oh, how we are not, but yet somehow in how great you are, you love us, you care for us, and you're mindful of us.
that makes me cringe because I cannot fathom why a holy God would ever be mindful of us, especially me. But I am grateful to call you God. I am grateful to know that your divine quality says you are mindful and that you do care. And as a result, you invite us to worship you where the praise of the children can then demolish strongholds and silence the avenger. Your creation can undo us, but therefore it reveals who you are. And then you invite us. God, speak to our hearts as this song is played. May it cause praise to come to our lips. In your son's name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. O Lord, our Lord, O God, my God, O King, my King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is his name. And in the same way, he says, in all the earth, the Apostle John said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. You see, the creator God made us in his image so that he could have a relationship with us and that he could take joy in that glory that he passed on to us. And when it was broken in the garden, by sin that didn't thwart God's love it intensified it and he went to a further end to see that that love would be realized and it was done so in Jesus creation is merely the point there is a God and he's mindful of human beings and he cares for them But the special revelation needed to know how he cares is to let people know that Jesus is the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, and he has come to redeem a people for his own. And he wants to give them life, life eternal. This is a prophecy of the care of God. And we've just received it from a man who was blown away by what he saw in the stars and the moon that night. And now we know how God, how far God would go to care. We're blessed. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, cry out to him now. He wants you to have a relationship with him. Merely believe that his son Jesus is sufficient. Confess your sins to him and trust in his work and make him the leader of your life. Some of you, you may have made that decision when you were younger, but you came to a place where it's like you've gone on a long time and you've become rather full of yourself, like King David. And you're in need of a humbling and realize that God is God and you are not. My prayer has been this week is that God would wreck you. How do you like that? But if your pride has gotten so far that you 
mistaken who God actually is, I've asked that God would wreck you and that you would realize who he is and who you're not. But then you'll, then God will then reveal the caring side of himself and redeem you. So for those of you that are in the room and maybe heading home, there is an opportunity to discuss this. We have several questions that we've asked, and it begins with, tell your story of the moment when you were in nature and God did what he did to David and did what he did to me in Zimbabwe, where he revealed himself through what you see in creation. Share your story and then begin to ask, like, what does it look like to then explain to somebody in your oikos, your relational world, what it means to know that there is a God and to know who he is and that he cares for you. Having said that, I send you out of this room now as image bearers of God. Humble yourself before his glory, the immovable glory, but then let his glory be seen through you and you glorify him as ones that are image bearers of him, but now armed with the message of God's love found in Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed and enjoy the stars and the moon tonight.